Yeah, th th thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Um, I still work at MCH. It kind of went into a lull, but we're we're about to come out of the lull. So, uh, okay. so it's like really being schizophrenic, thinking about the hypothalamus and the liver. So today I'm going to tell you about fibroblast growth factor 21, which I'm very interested in, and which I have to say, um, a lot of people are considering as um, what its potential is as a human therapeutic. Uh, so it's kind of something to keep in mind that it may one day appear, at least in clinical trials, whether it will ever go anywhere, who knows. So um, this is what I'm going to sort of an overview of what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to start off with dietary myths and obesity because this is actually one of my favorite side topics. There's a lot of stuff that you hear, like breakfast is the most important meal of the day, which is like, really? Since when? Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe for some people, but not for everyone. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about FGF21 and how we got interested in it. I'm going to talk about FGF21 action in the liver, uh, a little bit about FGF21 resistance and obesity. Then I'm going to tell you about what we've been doing in humans and about rethinking the role of FGF21 and its potential um, effects in liver disease. So um, if, if you're in diabetes or obesity research, you know, you've seen the slide, you know, people are getting heavier and they're getting fatter and there's getting to be more diabetes. Um, this is the 2005 data, it looks a little worse than the 2009 data. So here in, uh, in uh, Mississippi and uh, Alabama, you've got like th more than 30% of the people are um, either overweight or obese. So uh, it's a major, major problem. And um, he, these are some of the dietary myths that, that actually have emerged. So about 1970, the American Heart Association and the American Diabetes Association uh, came up with the idea that high-fat diets were unhealthy because they predisposed to cardiovascular disease. There was no differentiation of the fat. Are you getting it by eating salmon and almonds, or are you getting it by eating you know, um, uh, steak? Um, and uh, triple creme cheese, but this, this came up as an idea. And the other idea that came up around 1970s that, that the, the, the volume idea of uh, satiety, that what fills you up is not the quality of the calories that you're eating or the total number of calories, but rather the amount of bulk that ends up in your stomach, uh, which means popcorn should be a really satiating kind of meal. Uh, so the re recommendation was that uh, high-fat diets actually in encourage increased food consumption. And the recommendations for both the American Heart Association and the ADA and most nutritionists and most people in the know about diet, except maybe for Atkins Zone and South Beach, which are all popularized diets, they're not like scientific diets, was to limit fats and to eat carbohydrates. And this is what happened, and this is U.S. agriculture data, and it's just starting to change. I have to update my slides a little bit, but not very much. So this is the food energy per person between 1970, and this is actually 1995. So it's, it's lagging behind, but food energy per person has not gone down. It actually went up by 500 calories a day. And what were people eating? Well, eat carbs. So they were eating more carbohydrates. In fact, most of the increase in food energy per, per person consumed in the United States was the increase in carbohydrate con, um, consumption. Um, there was a little bit of increase in protein consumption, and believe it or not, fat didn't change. It didn't go down, but it didn't go up. So people were, in fact, as a population, were eating more carbohydrates. Um, so sort of around about just about 10 years ago, there was an increased interest in trying different diets in terms of weight loss, and a couple of the studies came out saying <coughs> that Atkins-style ketogenic diets actually promote weight loss in a manner that may, in, from the point of view of the acute weight loss, is more effective than um, the, uh, the, the limita limiting fats, okay? So actually a low-fat, high-carb diet is, is less likely to cause acute weight loss in most people than a high-fat, low-carb diet. So there was an increased interest in these diets, and they didn't have particularly bad effects. It turns out if you're obese, if you lose weight, it almost doesn't matter how you're losing weight. The, the really good thing is the weight loss. It's not what you're eating to lose weight. So, you know, I said to people, like, if you can lose weight by eating broccoli and steak, you're better off than eating a wonderfully balanced diet and gaining weight. So, um, so we decided to test the dietary hypothesis in a mass model. And um, this had um, 
We started these experiments in 2003. No one had ever done it. We could not find a single study that compared di different diet composition other than the conventional high-fat diets. Now, what's wrong with the conventional high-fat diets for mice? If you look at them, they're also high sucrose. So every one of those research diets, diets, it's got a lot of sucrose in it. And there's a lot of studies out there on looking at fats on a high, mice on a high-fat diet. But in fact, it's a high-fat, high-sucrose diet. So no one had ever studied, uh, studied like a real high-fat diet. And uh, we chose mice because we have total control over the diet. If you're dealing with humans, you always worry, are they really paying attention to what you told them to do? And are they really being compliant? Uh, we chose the black six strain because everybody um, who does mouse obesity knows this is a very consistent, um, it, it's easy to make fat by putting them on one of these standard high fat, high sucrose diets. Uh, we could do all kinds of metabolic studies which are not possible in humans, including putting like 16 mice into metabolic chain, chambers. We could look at whatever organ we wanted to look at. And in, in mice are a really good model of human obesity. So, um, you know, there's some things for which mice are a terrible model, but in human obesity, if you're a leptin-deficient mouse and a leptin-deficient human, you look pretty similar. I mean, there are some differences, but they, they look pretty similar. So, um, and, and in fact, the major discoveries in human obesity came from studying leptin-deficient mice and then also studying the uh, melanocortin uh, signaling-deficient mice. So we, we went for mice. And these are the four diets we decided to use. Conventional chow in mice has 6% total calories from fat. The high-fat diet is, I'm sorry, 6%, um, yeah, 6% calories. The, the high-fat diet is 22% calories from saturated fat. It's also high in sucrose. The ketogenic diet is 88% fat, okay? Um, it has 9% protein, which is just enough protein that the mouse does not become protein deficient. Uh, but it's basically fat. What, why, do we, why does it have to basically be fat? It turns out that mice um, are really good at gluconeogenesis, and you give them a little bit of protein in their diet, and um, they, they're no longer ketotic, and there's actually a group, uh, I forget the, the name of the, um, the senior author, that actually looked at this and published it in HAP about how adding protein back to the diet, they're no longer ketotic. And then we calorie-restricted mice because we wanted to match the weights of the ketogenic diet mice um, by um, actually calorie restricting um, a, a group of animals. So what happened to the weights? Well, so in pink we have the conventional increase in, in weight um, that you see when you have diet-induced obesity, and this was over a 60-day 60, 60 follow-up of the mice. In blue are mice eating the conventional laboratory chow, whatever um, chow you're uh, animal facility happens to order, although some animal facilities use some diets that actually will make mice fat. Um, and then in green, we have the, the weights of the ketogenic diet fed animals, which went down acutely and then stabilized out. And then in gray are mice that we calorie restricted. And we actually had to do a little bit of adjusting of their calorie restricted to get the weights matched at the end. Uh, a little over aggressive here. We had to ease up on it. and But at the end of the of experiment when we were doing physiologic studies, the weights of the animals were completely matched. Um, this is the cumulative. Carol, what, what were the calorie restricted animals? Were that was that chow or no? It was longevity diet. It was actually calorie restricted longevity diet, the one that gets used for long-term longevity studies. So they, so in um, it's about it's thirty percent calorie restriction, but in in that amount of food, it's the full supplementation of uh, nutrients and. Uh, vitamins and stuff like that. So it's actually, um, the, uh, it's the green diet. If, if, if you're getting it from research diets, uh, the, our high-fat diet is pink and our, and our, our calorie-restricted diet is green. I never fully understood why color-cutting diets, these diets is a good idea when you realize sometimes people aren't paying attention and at least the color is a, is a good indicator if your mice are getting the right diet. Um, so what's the proportion of fats in your so the calorie-restricted diet, the, the, the ratio of fat to protein to carbohydrate is the same as in a conventional, uh, conventional chow. It just has the extra supplementation so that you can calorie-restrict but not vitamin and mineral-restrict. Um, and so this is the total um, cumulative calorie intake over 33 days, at which point um, the person who was doing this experiment refused to m measure the uh, calorie intake anymore because... 
basically when you, what we did is we weighed the food and then we, we, we uh, calculated the total calorie intake from just, you know, the, cal the calorie content of the diet. So basically the, 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 the mice are eating the same amount except for the ones that we calorie restrict because we calorie restrict them. So these mice are all eating the same amount whether they're getting chow or they're getting a, um, a ketogenic diet or they're getting a high fat diet. So basically um, it's not their total calorie intake that's determining their weight. And actually surprisingly if you look at a C57 black six mass that you put on a high fat diet, it's hyperphagic for two days if you follow this out. And, and we actually published a really extensive analysis of this a couple of years ago because they don't get fat because they eat a lot. They actually get fat because you put them on a high fat diet, their energy expenditure goes down. Um, and the reason 129 mice are resistant to diet-induced obesity, they actually eat more than C57 black six mice, but they have higher energy expenditures. So in the case of the C57 black six mice, it wasn't surprising that they, they weren't eating more at 33 days because whatever increase they had in the first couple of days was washed out by 33 days of the diet. Anyway, we then put them in a calorimeter and we measured their oxygen consumption. And you can see that in green is the ketogenic diet mice, the, their total VO2. And VO2 is an index of resting energy expenditure. And one of the reasons we wanted that, a, that weight match grade control is they weighed the exact same amount as the ketogenic diet mice and actually had the same body composition. And yet they had a much lower energy expenditure, which is um, over here in the grip. So basically the reason that ketogenic diet mice lose weight while eating the same calories as chow fat and high fat diet mice is they increase their energy expenditure. And in um, the paper that we published on them, they also have increased brown fat, and they have increased um, uncoupling protein expression in brown fat, and almost no fat in their brown fat, so they're actually energetically very activated. So um, if you look at the relative difference in weight, the high-fat diet mice ate 460 calories. They gained 4 grams over our observation period. The KD-fed animals ate 460 calories, and they lost 4 grams. So while a calorie is a calorie if you put your sample in a bomb calorimeter, <coughs> from a thermodynamic perspective, if you, uh, your, the physiologic response to these different calories actually trumps the thermodynamic truth that a calorie is a calorie. Okay, so what did these guys look like physiologically? Well, actually, they looked pretty good. So um, if you look at here is the ketogenic diet fed animals. Um, their triglycerides were all the same. They don't, high fat diet my animals also didn't have higher triglycerides. The cholesterol went up a little bit, but less than in the high fat diet. And um, they, so not, it, wasn't, it wasn't like we suddenly created you know, mice with like, cholesterol throughout their body. The liver triglycerides actually went up substantially. But it's interesting because these liver triglycerides are very different than these liver triglycerides. These liver triglycerides are synthesized by the liver. These liver triglycerides are coming from the gut. Um, and um, and it, that has actually pretty interesting implications. Um, their glucoses were the lowest of all of our four groups. So mice tend to run a little hyperglycemic. These guys had the lowest glucoses, even in the calorie-restricted mice. Their insulin levels were in the bargain basement. This is like really, really low insulin levels. It's like one nanogram per mil. Calorie restricted mice had six nanograms per mil. As expected, the obese mice had high insulin levels. Uh, leptin levels were actually really interesting. Um, something I want to follow up at some point, but none of these mice actually changed their leptin levels. And when you look at the inguinal fat pads, none of these mice actually had a change in the total weight of their inguinal fat pads, except for the high-fat diet mice that had obesity and had very high insulin levels. Um, and um, the one other noteworthy thing is when you calorie-restrict animals, their testosterone goes down if they're males. If they're females, they stop cycling. Um, in the case of the ketogenic diet animals, even though they lost weight, their testosterone levels were actually preserved. And this is just to graph what I just said. Basically, the ketogenic diet animals have almost no insulin. I fat diet had high insulin, and they also have high leptin levels. Okay. So it was really metabolically interesting. Okay, that's nice. Uh, but we wanted to say, can we discover something new by having studied this model? And we decided to look at an organ-specific expression profile to get some, hopefully, some kind of insight. 
into the metabolic effects of the ketogenic diet. Um, these days, everybody, you get an interesting result, and you know, you just like you send everything to your Affymetrix lab. When we were doing these experiments, the Affymetrix lab was really expensive. People weren't doing it, and the NIH would practically choke if you um, proposed it in a grant. So, uh, so this was a big deal. So we were trying to figure out, so which tissue should we study? And the organs that play critical ro roles in energy homeostasis our brain, liver, white adipose tissue, brain adipose tissue, muscle, and gut. There's a big choice. And I had never worked on the brain, and I didn't really, I mean, on the liver. I didn't really want to do the liver, but I got talked into doing the liver by two people in my lab. Um, I didn't want to do the brain either, because when we had screened things in the hypothalamus, the hypothalamus looked pretty boring. Um, but I didn't know what tissue to choose. So we said, okay, fine, we'll do the liver. So we did the liver. And we looked at um, the differences in gene expression, um, doing the affymetrics analysis. And what was really interesting is that the biggest differences between any two groups were between ketogenic diet. If you compare chow and high-fat diet, there were 400 genes that were different, basically either in the up direction or down direction between high-fat diet and chow. There were 3,000 genes that were different in ketogenic diet. Um, compared to chow um, in, the, in the decreased direction and just about 3,000 that were increased. So it was a really dramatic difference. And we picked a series of genes, actually, um, Bruce Spiegelman had just published a paper on the acute effects of eat, feeding a high-fat diet on liver gene expression, and we just said, okay, let's just look at these genes, because Bruce has published them and they must be good, right? And uh, so we actually took um, this series of genes, um, and up here are the genes involved in um, ketone metabolism, ketone generation, and fatty acid oxidation. And over here is uh, FAST somewhere, fatty acid synthase, and um, uh, SCUD1 is also over here. But so basically, the enzymes involved in synthesis of fatty acids were markedly decreased, and the enzymes involved in fatty acid oxidation and ketone generation were really increased. And in fact, and this is, this is uh, chow-fed animals, this is calorie-restricted animals, this is high-fat uh, fed animals, which actually look pretty similar to, to, to chow, and this is the ketogenic diet group. And our, and our AFI people um, came back and said to us, wow, you know, these, with, with this gene profile, you could give us the liver and we could tell you what diet mice are eating just by looking at these genes. So, um, so we said, okay, they're nice, they're metabolically different. So um, we concluded that you know, the, the consumption of a ketogenic diet in, you, induces a unique state in the context of normal calorie intake, increased energy expenditure. There's exquisite insulin sensitivity in these guys. Somebody may ask me about this later, but they're very insulin sensitive. They have fatty liver, and they have a very distinct hepatic gene expression profile. All right, that got me a paper in AJP, uh, which was nice, but the question is, can we find something really new using this um, model system? And we were, we were kind of lucky, because um, when we looked at the array data, the single most highly expressed gene in mice eating a ketogenic diet was FGF21. Okay, wasn't even, it wasn't even like, you know, is, does it look like it's different. It was, it was so different, in fact, that we completely ignored the fact that it's about two to three-fold increase in high-fed diet animals, because if you have like a 20-fold increase, who cares about the two to three-fold increase? And at the time, we said, what's FGF21? Um, so um, it was initially identified in, uh, right around 2000 as a uh, homology in silico study um, in the spleen. The highest level of expression at the time that we were doing these studies was reported to be in the liver uh, with some expression in adipose tissue. It actually turns out the highest expression of FGF21 is in the acinar pancreas, and I have no idea what it's doing there. Um, it acts through, the there, there are four FGF receptors, and it acts through one, two, and um, FGF receptor four. The metabolic role had actually been identified by a group of people at Lilly who were doing screens for compounds that would increase glucose uptake in 3T3L1 adipocytes, and FGF21 had come up, 
and it increases glucose uptake by the induction of GLUT1 expression. So a metabolic known was, role was known, and there was actually one publication by uh, the group at Lilly that if you gave high doses of it to OBOB mice, you get improved metabolic profile and some weight loss. Um, the FGFs are a really complicated family. Uh, this is their family tree. Um, and um, they're mostly intracellular signaling molecules. Um, there are a total of 22, even though the numbers go up to 23. Um, the, they act as growth factors. Um, and almost all of them have a heparin binding domain. And the heparin binding domain serves to keep them local. They can't really diffuse out of the tissue. And the heparin binding domain is, is, is required for action through um, the FGF receptor. Now, these uh, purple up and why? Oh, by the way, the reason that there are 22, but um, they're, uh, they're, they, they number up to 23, is that FGF 15 is the homologue of human FGF 19. So FGF 19 and 15 are the same. One is the mass version, one is the human version. So these um, three purple FGFs are distinct in that they lack the heparin binding domain and find their way into the circulation. And in order to act on an FGF receptor, uh, they, they, you need a co-receptor expressed on the cell called beta-clotho. So the, the active receptor complex in, involves one of the FGF receptors plus beta-clotho. Um, and it makes them unique. And FGF23 is actually a regulator of phosphate metabolism in the kidney. Uh, FGF15 and 19 play a role in bile metabolism. Okay. So it's nice that FGF21 increases with a ketogenic diet, but is there any physiologic regulation of FGF21? Well, so um, what we did, it's like, you know, you have a factor, it's in the liver, you fast your animals. So this is fasted animals for 24 hours. This is looking at ketone levels. This is looking at NIFA's non-esterified free fatty acids, and this is looking at FGF21. It starts to come on at eight hours, and it's pretty high at 24 hours. You refeed the animals, the, the ketones go away, the nephes go away, and within eight hours you pretty much have down-regulated your FGF21 expression. So it's physiologically regulated in the fasted state. So at the time we found this, okay, well what options do we have for actually figuring out what FGF21 does? Well there's the whole body deletion, let's make an, a knockout. There's organ-specific deletion, which is like let's make a flux knockout so we can knock it out in specific um, organs. We're actually working on this right now, uh, trying to make a flux mouse. Um, or we can do adenovirus-mediated gene knockdown. And since we were kind of in a rush, we went with the adenovirus um, gene knockdown, which is great in the liver because you put in the tail vein, the virus goes to the liver, and you really can get really nice knockdown of whatever gene of interest you have. So we knocked it down. So what did the livers look like? Well. Uh, I had a very excited postdoc when he started sacrificing the mice because this is what the livers look like. This is a ketogenic diet liver, which, you know, is a little bit bigger than a chow-fed animal, and it's got more fat, as I showed you, but it's not huge. These livers were really big. And, um, and then in terms of the histology, um, they had bigger fat globules than the ketogenic diet livers, and this, this is our control knockout. If you just look, uh, uh, I think this was uh, LAC-Z, uh, the adenovirus infection itself doesn't actually do anything. Um, and uh, the other interesting thing that we found is that we got really lipemic serum. So it's like the fatty acids go to the liver from the gut and they can't go anywhere So they get because they can't get oxidized when you've knocked down FGF21, so they get secreted into the circulation. So this is the serum triglycerides in um, knockdown animals Knockdown in chow, on chow fed animals has little effect. In ketogenic diet animals, it has a huge effect. Triglycerides go up, and this is the non esterified free fatty acids, which also go up. Cholesterol goes up a little bit. So, okay, it acts on the liver. It's important for, uh, for um, fatty acid oxidation. Around that time, um, we, were at, we started talking with um, the guys at Lilly, and they had mice lacking FGF21, and they'd actually had these mice for three years, and they were convinced that the mice had no phenotype. Um, so we said, okay, well, send them over. We know we'll have a look at them. We'll see if they have a phenotype. And putting these mice on a ketogenic diet is not something a drug company would do. It's just like it's not the way they work. So when you look at the baseline mice, yeah, they didn't have much of a phenotype. These were kind of at 24 weeks, they had 
a little bit of extra body weight. Maybe they had a little bit of increased food intake, but nothing dramatic. They had, you know, some, at, again, at 14 weeks, they were very unremarkable. At, at 24 weeks, they had an, an increase in uh, total body fat as measured by DEXA scan. They were a little glucose intolerant, but this was not a dramatic phenotype. So we put these guys on a ketogenic diet, and they gained weight. So the control animals lost weight, as I showed you earlier. These guys actually gained weight. They became ketotic, but not nearly as ketotic as the, uh, the control animals. Their food intake was a little bit higher, even in the ketogenic diet. And their body composition, consistent, consistent with their increase in weight, actually increased um, significantly. So they got that in the ketogenic diet. And then when we looked at their livers, so the ketogenic diet, like I said, you get fatty liver. Here's the fat in the liver in, in the ketogenic diet mice. Um, but the knockouts had fat all over their liver. I mean, they had big livers. It looks like the knockout. And this is like the uh, total triglycerides in the liver. And the other interesting thing is that they weren't able to mobilize glycogen, so we saw like, lots of glycogen particles in the liver of these animals. So based on both the knockdowns and the ECTR-21 knockouts, we concluded that ECTR-21 is required for appropriate maintenance of uh, lipid oxidation. Um, if you don't have it, you don't oxidize lipid appropriately. So around the, the time we're doing these studies, a paper came out saying, well, that's nice, but FGF21 doesn't act on the liver, which seemed almost inconceivable uh, to us. So we decided to actually test that question ourselves. And this is a cartoon of the FGF21 signaling pathway showing that you get, um, this is beta-cloco, here's the receptor. Uh, you activate FRS2 and GRAB2. You end up uh, with a phosphorylation of MAP kinase. And then you get, you get changes in gene expression. I still don't really know how FGF21 induces all the changes in gene expression that it induces, but uh, in terms of like, you know, what's really the, the, the pathway of action. But it does induce EGR1, and it also induces CFOS. So we um, said, okay, let's look, to look at for the phosphorylation events. And this is white adipose tissue, which is an accepted target of FGF21. And uh, here is the induction of phosphorylation of FRS2, and here is the induction of the phosphorylation of ERK in white adipose tissue. And we found the same thing in liver. We saw induction of FRS2, not quite as robust, but a pretty nice robust response to, um, in terms of phosphorylation of ERK when we did these experiments. And um, so we said, okay, we're getting the phosphorylation and uh, it, look, it actually induces the appropriate phosphorylation uh, events, and it also induces the early response genes, which I'm not going to show, but if you, that, it's actually published. So, so the liver is a target of FGF21. Um, so although, now we got to another conundrum, which is so, that... So quickly does it happen? Is that oh, so the time course for, for this, is um, it starts at about five minutes maximum around in the 10 to 20 minutes and then it's gone. So it's, it's uh, you know, sort of what you would expect for phosphorylation events. In terms of gene expression, we looked at EGR, uh, yeah, we looked at EGR1 and CFOS. Those start to come on at one hour. They're, they maximize in the two to four hour time course and then they go down. To do these experiments, we did intravenous cable injection, and for the gene expression experiments, we did an IP injection. Um, so, okay, so uh, so right around this time, papers in the literature started to come out. Everybody took out their freezer samples, um, clinical samples, and um, it turns out FGF21 is high in obesity. And we had actually noted that initially in, a, in our uh, affirmatrix screens, but hadn't paid att attention to it. But when the paper started to come out that there was high in human obesity, we started to look in our obese mice, and we found that, yeah, it's high in the liver, and it's also high in the serum. So we asked the question, is obesity a state of FGF21 resistance? The levels are high, but the liver doesn't actually clear a fat. Um, and so what we did is we decided to go back to the signaling pathways. We took the obese mice and did the same experiments we had done in chat-fed mice. And this is looking at the induction of immediate early genes. So here is a nice induction of EGR1 in the liver uh, with increasing doses of FGF21. And here is uh, a nice induction of EGR1 in fat. 
um, with increasing doses of FJ21. If you look at the dark purple, these are the obese animals. So in terms of gene expression, even up to 200 nanograms uh, per gram of body weight, which caused a really robust induction in liver and fat in the light uh, kind of grayish purple animal uh, animals, we saw no induction in, um, in um, the obese animals. And this is actually shown, showing the actual, um, uh, at, these are actually also looking at the lots of, um, at the protein level. Okay, so it's not inducing it. And the other thing that we, and actually the phosphorylation data, you know, I think I've hidden the slide somewhere that I meant to show. The phosphorylation data uh, was the same. Basically, uh, although it was not quite as dramatic as the gene expression data, there was attenuated phosphorylation in the liver and the white adipose tissue in the obese animals. Okay, and then if you look at a physiologic endpoint, which is um, plasma glucose, which is lowered a little bit in, in wild type normal uh, weight animals, um, it was actually attenuated in the obese animals. It went down a little, but this was not statistically significant. And there was a much more dramatic effect on non-acetophrite free fatty acids, which when you give FGF21 go down very reliably in a lean animal. Um, they did not go down so well in an obese animal. So we concluded that, yeah, it's, it looks like obesity is a state of FGF21 resistance. Now, if you give a lot of FGF21 over time, like pharmacologic doses and long-term infusion, you can overcome that, which is why it works if you give it chronically to OBOB animals, and that actually has been published now by a couple of different groups, including um, the uh, two groups in industry, the Lilly group, and I'm pretty sure it's the Merck group has also published that. So then we went back and asked the question, okay, so what's going with, on with FJ21 in humans? And uh, actually, we were asking this question all along because I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if this goes up in humans eating a ketogenic diet? So most of the measurements that have been done in humans, even to now, are retrospective studies looking at serum levels. Um, and there's a consistent increase in, um, with BMI over, over a fairly narrow range, okay? It's not like it goes up like a hundredfold, but it is a consistent increase. Now, there was one study that was published that it went up really dramatically in, um, in anorexia, and there was one, one study in a, in a seven-day fast. It turns out the seven-day fast study was people with rheumatoid arthritis that were fasted for seven days to see if that would have an effect on their rheumatoid arthritis, and those samples were like 20 years old. But anyway, that's what, what was kind of has, was published, and there are now numerous studies about the correlation with, with BMI um, that have been published in the literature. So anyway, so we took humans, and uh, we convinced them to go on a ketogenic diet for um, 12 days. And, uh, and all these people were normal weight, and they got, actually it's not that hard to make humans ketotic compared to making mice ketotic, so you kind of give them lean cuisine and tell them, a certain you know carb level of carbs. It, w it wasn't that hard, and we got them to stay on this diet for 12 days. In part because most of them were actually losing weight e um, eating this diet. So it's like let's jump start our diet, and we were giving them the meals, which they also really liked. So anyway, so this is a single individual. She had this person, woman, BMI 19.5. In blue are her ketone levels. So this is her fasting ketones after a 16-hour overnight fast. Most people are not very ketotic. We then gave people a boost meal, and then we fasted them for 12 days. After 12 days, the person had pretty high uh, ketone levels. Okay, then we actually gave them another boost meal. Their ketones went down. And then curiously, most people after a single, one of these single boost meals, which are used in, as an alternative to glucose tolerance tests, their ketones go back up, and sure enough, her ketones went back up. And in parallel, we looked at the insulin levels. Okay, they're low, she's fasting, they go up after she gets the boost. After 12 days of ketosis, they're really low, just like the mice eating, eating this diet. They go up when she gets the second boost meal, and then they go down again. Okay, so this is kind of nice. She's there, the, the people got ketotic, and they did as expected. Okay, their FGF21 levels did not change. Uh, so this is um, that single that single person. This is a radioamino assay. We did an ELISA, no change in FGF21 levels. Now I have to say that to this day, no one has a clue as to how FGF21 circulates, whether it's degraded, 
whether it's a dimer, whether it circulates to binding protein. I actually have a student who's working on that right now, and she's running a lot of gels and doing column chromatography, which no one had seen in the lab for at least 20 years. And, um, you know, we're, we're, so far we don't know, but we're starting to get some insights. Okay. Um, and then this is all 12 subjects. They did not change. Uh, really disappointing. The, we did the correlation. Now we had all these, like, subjects from, from our ketogenic diet study before they were in the diet. And then we were doing another study actually related to the role of exenatide in weight loss. And we took all of our samples and we measured FGF21 in everybody and we got a nice correlation that was actually better than some of the published correlations on BMI and FGF21. But it doesn't change with any dietary manipulation. And this is actually a 16-hour fast and uh, just to show that nothing happens with a 16-hour fast. Now, if you take people and you fast them for 72 hours, and we've, since we've done this study, we actually increased the N by 2, these were male college student volunteers. And <laughs> you, I guess if you pay a male college student enough, they'll come and they'll fast for 72 hours. Not one woman in the group, but um, uh, I mean, not one woman volunteer. Uh, so their FGF21 levels actually went down really dramatically. Okay. Uh, now, one unfortunate thing is you can't get liver in humans before and after fast. Um, so. Uh, we didn't find, uh, so, so one of the things we did is we did get their fat. So we were able to actually get subcutaneous fat before and after the fast. And actually, although there's one group that's reported after 21 expression in subcutaneous fat, we couldn't find any. And so, uh, so we couldn't report any change. And uh, actually less than 30% of our samples had any expression and it was pretty low expression. You had to go at least 30% <coughs> to, uh, to pick up a signal. So, so we're saying, okay, well, it's increased in obesity. We can't regulate it with diet. Uh, but both human and rodent obesity are associated with increased fatty liver. And by then, we've gone back and looked at all of our rodent samples and found that, yes, it is increased with obesity in the liver. So we, uh, we wanted to ask the question, does increased um, expression of circulating FGF21 in humans reflect increased expression in the liver. And um, it turns out, just quite by accident, I had a colleague who had a colleague in Spain who was interested in fatty liver, and she had all these fatty liver samples. So from normal people, people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and people with non-alcoholic state of hepatosis. So all biopsy read by their, her pathologist and stuff, so we looked at mRNA expression in, in these samples. This was not a great, big group. This is about six to eight samples per, um, per group. And we found that the NAFLD people, it, the NAFLD livers actually have a high level of FGF21 mRNA expression, which actually goes down in NASH. Now, these are pretty different entities because this is just fatty infiltration. This is fatty infiltration with inflammation and steatosis and liver damage. Um, when we looked in the serum, this was the, the, the circulating levels were consistent with the expression levels, although the Nash people had somewhat higher levels, which we attributed, you know, as a hand-waving thing. We don't really know why, but this may reflect just leakage into the circulation, the way ALT and AST go up when you have, um, when you have non-alcohol, when you get to the Nash point. This can be associated with mild elevations of the transaminations. This is associated with more elevation of the transaminations. So what about NAFLD and NASH? Um, one day I may get this paper published, but you know, so far not. But we've done a, a huge study looking at a model of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in mice. Now, just the, the brief summary is the liver is normal. You get fatty infiltration as you get more and more obese. And it turns out that this is now a major problem in, in teenage obesity. So there's a bunch of teenagers running around with fatty liver. And um, if you talk to hepatologists, uh, there are even like people in their 20s getting transplants because they got fatty liver in their teens, which means they were very sensitive to whatever the metabolic uh, inputs into fatty liver are, and they're having cirrhosis when in, in their 20s and having transplants. Because the progression from fatty liver is to NASH, so you get scarring and inflammation, and then that progresses to downright cirrhosis. So, it's a big problem, and there is, and in fact, if you talk to hepatologists, it's the single most 
obesity is now the single most um, highest cause of liver disease in the United States. Not in third world countries, but in the United States, you see more problems from people who have fat, fatty liver and progression because there's so many people who are obese compared to, let's say, hepatitis, because for hepatitis C, there's a vaccine. Um, and um, so they actually, hepatologists are really concerned. We now have like a work group in Boston to get together and talk about it because it's a sufficient problem. And there's no drug for it. So, um, so we wanted to ask the question, if, if FJF21 expression in the liver is an independent uh, reflection of the accumulation, not necessarily of the derangements of obesity, but more of the derangements of having fat in the liver. Um, so uh, what we decided to do is what happens to non ask the question, what happens to non-obese animals? Okay, so if you make fatty liver but the animal isn't obese, um, in terms of FGF21. There's no great model of non-obese, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in mice. The best mice um, are the, the best models are these methionine choline deficient uh, diets. So we took knockout mice and their litter mates. They, these are kind of an older cohort and we put them on um, a controlled diet for the methionine choline deficient diet. Um, a choline deficient diet and a methionine choline deficient diet, and we kept them on there for eight weeks. Uh, I'm not going to show the data on the choline deficient diet because it wasn't all that interesting. I'm going to show the methionine choline deficient diet. The first thing we did on these diets is we looked to see um, where uh, FJ21 expression might change. Um, it, it actually went up in the serum, um, and the biggest change in response to the methionine choline deficient diet was in the liver. Here's the, the increase in the serum levels. Fortunately for us, it went down in pancreas because otherwise we wouldn't be able to, to dissect out the relative contribution of the different organs. And it also went down a little bit in white adipose tissue. So um, how does FGF21 deficiency uh, affect the development of uh, the state of hepatosis? Well, if you look at Wild-type versus knockout animals, so this is the FGF21 knockout animal, um, they lose weight on this diet. That's actually an issue. You can't keep them on the diet for much longer than eight weeks because they, they lose weight. They kind of become runty. Um, the FGF20, both groups of animals lost weight, and they lost weight in parallel. The, the, the knockout started a little heavier. This is a 30-week co cohort, so, but they all lost pretty similar amounts of weight. Now, the knockouts got a substantial increase in their liver weight above and beyond what we saw in the wild type animals. And then hepatologists have this ratio they like, which is the liver to body weight ratio. And even though these guys are bigger, so you can say, well, they've got a bigger liver because they're a bigger animal, they actually have a higher liver to body weight ratio, suggesting that they have hepatomegaly. And then when we looked at the slides, um, these are wild type animals in, in terms of um, the, the amount of fatty liver they have eating this diet. Uh, so this is uh, 10x, this is 20x. Um, and you can see that compared to knockout, visually it was pretty obvious, but we had a hepatologist read all of this. There's a lot more fatty liver in the knockout animals eating this diet. And then there's this uh, staining called serious red, which is a marker um, of, uh, of um, fibrosis in the liver, and there was actually more serious red fibrosis. And again, all of these samples were read by hepatologists. So basically, they got higher levels of fatty liver and they got higher fibrosis. And consistent with that, um, the, the levels of fibrotic markers, this is a panel of commonly used fibrotic markers in, in um, fibrotic liver disease, these were all higher in the knockout animals that were eating this diet. And interestingly, they also had much higher levels of inflammation um, when they were when we put the knockouts on this diet. So their, their inflammatory markers were high, and their fibrotic markers were high. Okay, so we also have a mouse that makes um, it's a transgenic overexpressor of FGF21. So we took the overexpressors, you know, doing the yin and yang and put them on the diet. Now the overexpressors are small um, because they're so actively oxidizing fatty acids that they actually can't gain weight. They're resistant to dyna-induced obesity. So they're small mice, lost a little bit of weight. Their liver, to, uh, their liver weights were lower and their liver to body weight ratios were lower. So okay, this is the overexpressor. They're not getting hepatomegaly. And then when we looked at their livers, this is the wild type animals 
Um, and then this is the knock of it. The overexpressing animals, they actually had less fatty liver and they had less um, fibrotic markers. Okay. And then we looked at the, the markers over here in terms of expression, and they had less in the way of fibrotic markers, and they had less in the way of inflammatory markers. So it seems like FGF21 is playing a major role here in the inflammatory response to this diet. Um, so if, you, if you're deficient in FGF21, you have worse fatty liver, worse uh, steatosis, worse inflammation, worse fibrosis, and... The, and actually, this, the, the, I didn't show, there's a, a measurement called T-bars, which is re, 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 reflects uh, oxidative damage, so you have higher T-bars. And if you overexpress FGF21, you have attenuated steatosis and decreased inflammation and decreased fibrosis. Okay, so um, how is FGF21 affecting hepatic metabolism in mice with a steatosis? Well, so here's an overview of lipid oxidation, which is like not one of my areas of major expertise. So um, what happens in your, your long-chain fatty acids are um, in the plasma. They get into the liver cell as fatty acids. For a fatty acid to go anywhere in the liver, it has to get acylated. And uh, the first step is actually, it get, they get acylated, they become fatty acylcarnitine. And then one of two things can happen. You can either take this and make triglycerides from it, or it can go into the mitochondria and get oxidized. It, gets, it then gets deacylated and it gets oxidized through all those long, very long, medium and short chain fatty acid dehydrogenases. And eventually you end up acetyl-CoA, and the acetyl-CoA can either go into the citric acid cycle or you can make ketones. So uh, this is the pathway of what happens to fatty acids. So this acylation is mediated by enzymes called fatty acid acyl-CoA synthases, okay? And the, the transfer across the, um, um, the, mito uh, the mitochondria involves CPT1, and then CPT2 deacylates it. It actually, has, I guess, has the carnitine put on it and then gets into the mitochondria. And then you have the oxidation happening. Okay. So when we looked at, um, um, I guess this is just the overview, okay? So you're going from long-chain fatty acids to fatty acyl-CoA to the fatty acyl-carnitine to the mitochondria, fatty acyl-carnitine, decarnitinized, and then this fatty acid, acyl-CoA, can get oxidized to acetyl-CoA. Okay. So when we looked at the, the, the levels of free fatty acids in the knockout mice, you'd predict that there, if there's a defect here, okay, in this acyl-CoA synthase, if there's a defect here, you would have higher fatty acids and lower fatty acyl-CoAs. So we looked at fatty acids and in the liver of the knockout mice, and the free fatty acids are actually higher in the livers of the knockout mice, and they're lower in the livers of the overexpressing mice. So that's consistent with an impairment um, in not oxidation, but in acylation. Um, and then when we looked across the board of all the long-chain fatty acyl-CoAs, we actually sent these to a core laboratory, and they measured all of them. It was across the board from 16 to, in, in both saturated and unsaturated fatty acids were all decreased in terms of being acylated. And this is sort of like the total uh, of fat, fatty acyl-CoAs in the liver of the knockout animals. So they actually don't get acylated the way they should get acylated. And um, if you look at the overexpressing animals, it was, again, it was the opposite. The individual um, fatty acids were by and large increased in the overexpressing animals and the total was increased in the overexpressing animals. So there's a defect in acylation. So um, these, this, so studying this is really complicated and we actually haven't gotten into really looking at the molecular mechanisms because there are uh, five isoforms of long chain acyl-CoA synthase, ACSL1, and then there are six members of this family called FAT-TP, which is uh, becoming of high interest to hepatologists um, because uh, it may be involved in, in, in NAFLD. Uh, and the FAT-TPs are actually fatty acid transporter protein family, which also have acylation activity. Um, what exactly happens once, these, and once the fatty acids get acylated, whether they get 
um, whether they are acted on by CPT1 or whether they get synthesized into, into um, triglycerides is really not clear how they get shunted in one direction. I mean, yeah, how they get shunted in one direction over another. People think it may have something to do with like the local microenvironment of the cell, uh, but they're key intermediates. And if you look at, the, if you knock these out individually, these enzymes, you actually get uh, defects in triglyceride synthesis and fatty acid oxidation and fatty liver. So these are key mediators. So what we then did, what we then did is we actually went and measured the mRNA expression of a bunch of these acylating enzymes, and it turns out a bunch of them were decreased. So like um, you know significantly, AC um, SL1, 5, fat TP1 was markedly decreased, fat TP3 was really decreased. So they're decreased and. Better than that is if you actually look at the acylation activity of an extract of liver from uh, FJ21 knockout animals, there's less activity. So if you actually take the, um, the uh, uh, liver extract and you, you add radioactive uh, acyl donating groups, acetyl groups, you get less incorporation in the knockout animals. Um, and the other interesting thing is that because they're not getting into the mitochondria, you actually have decreased fatty acid oxidation as well. So that at least that's our theory, that they're not getting into the mitochondria. Because they're not getting into the mitochondria and making ketones, um, there is actually less oxidation. And then these enzymes, which are associated with um, but mitochondrial fatty acid oxidation like PGC1 and PPR alpha are also decreased. Okay, so we then took our FJ21 knockout mice and um, we put them on the methionine choline deficient diet and we gave them FGF21 back um, to see whether or not it would have any effect. And so these are the knockout mice, uh, these are wild type mice up here. These are knockout mice um, that are treated with saline. And again, here's this serious red looking for the fibrosis. And then these are the FGF21 treated non-animals. And they look better than the controls. So if you take uh, animals, you start them on a chronic infusion, pump infusion of FGF21, give them, put them on a methionine choline deficient diet, they actually look lovely. And their livers look great. And when you look at the markers of both um, uh, of both um, the uh, fibrotic markers and the uh, inflammatory markers. This is in white is wild type. These are the knockouts eating the MCD diet, and these are the knockouts treated with FGF21 eating the MCD diet. And you can see that pretty much across the board, um, FGF21 cures the uh, FGF21 knockout phenotype. I mean, they still have, you know, they're still on this diet. But they're actually pretty much looking like wild type animals on the diet. Okay, so it's F321 is markedly upregulated in the Snaffle D model that doesn't involve obesity. Uh, all the markers, I won't go through all this, but all the markers of uh, inflammation and fibrosis are better in the overexpressors and they're worse in knockout animals. And the knockout animals can be rescued by getting FGF21. So uh, we decided in the liver, it's acting locally. It's not coming from anywhere. It's coming from the liver, and it's um, acting locally in an adequate fashion, uh, and it's required for lipid oxidation. The absence of FGF21 in, lip, in animals eating a ketogenic diet, um, they, they cannot normally oxidize lipids. Um, that may be the explanation of the increase in body weight in those animals. Um, FGF21 is regulated physiologically in, with fasting and diet. In terms of what I think of FGF21 right now, I think uh, obesity is, F, is an FGF21, a state of FGF21 resistance. I think the biology in humans is really complicated, and until we figure out what it's doing in the circulation, just measuring it in the circulation is not going to be particularly informative. Um, maybe in, in humans in the circulation it reflects fatty liver accumulation. In mice, fatty liver in the absence of obesity um, increases FGF21 expression and the absence of FGF21 feeding an inflammatory diet that leads to NAFLD and NASH are much worse. And if you overexpress FGF21, you look a lot better. 
so FJ21 plays an important metabolic role and appears to be linked to fatty acid metabolism. Impaired action of FJ21 leads to the accumulation of free fatty acids. Now, this is an interesting idea that it's the free fatty acids in the liver that are the problem, not the triglycerides. When you're looking at those fat globules, you're looking at triglycerides, you know. So maybe one of the interesting things about the ketogenic diet is that you don't, you've got the fat globules, but, the, but they got there, they weren't synthesized there. That liver isn't seeing increased fatty acids, they're just getting into the liver from, um, from the gut and they're not, they're not being you know, actively synthesized. And it's an interesting idea is can FGF21 potentially serve as a therapeutic agent in NAFLD or NASH? It's a big question. The FDA doesn't like really long-term studies um, of agents like FGF21. You have to do this study in year, for years. And the other problem with NAFLD in humans is you can't predict who's going to progress. Some people will have it and they'll just have NAFLD. And some people will have it and they'll go on and develop NASH and develop cirrhosis. And there's really no marker right now for this is the group that's going to progress. Now, FGM21 also has actions in brown adipose tissue um, as well as white adipose tissue. I didn't show you any of that data, but we actually have, have a really active uh, interest in, in both brown adipose tissue and white adipose tissue. Um, it also has action in pancreas. Um, I don't know what. Uh, 8-phosphorylate, if you give FGF21, you actually get phosphorylation of the targets, and it's actually regulated in pancreas. So it goes, it goes up remarkably uh, with obesity and down with fasting in the pancreas, and I can't quite figure out. It, so it's the opposite of the liver in terms of the fasting effect. It goes up in liver, but it goes down in the pancreas. And it is in the acinar pancreas, so I have no idea what it's doing in the acinar pancreas. And there's also some evidence, um, actually, um, Mike Schwartz uh, from out in um, Seattle, Washington, published a paper that there's, that there's action in the brain, and, and we have some data along those lines as well. So that's actually something we're looking at. Um, this is the group. Not everybody here works on FJ21. There's some MCH people here as well, but this is, this is everybody uh, uh, who is in the... Uh, actually, Jeffrey and I uh, joined our labs when he became dean, and we have lab meeting. We have a two-hour lab meeting once a week. He also does edit papers. And um, we get to do this over at Gordon Hall, which is where his office is, because he cannot possibly walk over to where we are. We all walk over to where he is. And we have this lovely lab meeting. And Gordon Hall is actually a beautiful meeting building. Uh, these are the people who were key to this work. Adam Kennedy did the original studies in the, of the ketogenic diet. I probably would not have these, done these studies if he didn't come and ask, so what happens if you put mice on a ketogenic diet? And my reaction is probably nothing, but let's try it. Uh, and then it got really interesting. Um, Michael Badman did all the knockdown studies after we found FGF21. Pavlos Picios uh, actually is the guy who came to me and he said, you know, FGF21 is like really 30, 40-fold fit increased on the AFI chips. He was working on a different project at the time. But we have one other gene of interest, and hopefully in about a year and a half, he'll come and talk to you about this other gene we have, which is fantastic, which we picked up from studies in the ketogenic diet, and it's now his project, because it involves more biochemistry than my brain can handle. Uh, so uh, he's doing that. Martin Fisher has been doing a lot of the stuff in, 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 that I showed you in liver and obesity. He's now working actually on brown adipose tissue as well. Uh, Patricia Chewy at it, what did the... Uh, the, the methionine-choline deficient diet work. Uh, she was actually a surgeon, MD-PhD surgeon that was released, was let out from her surgical residency uh, for two years to do research, and, and uh, she's back being a surgeon. She's not totally happy. And Jody Duchet actually spearheaded all the um, all the study, all the clinical studies that we've been doing, uh, and including some that you know I didn't have a chance to talk about. Uh, that's Jeff in a relaxed moment. He only looks that way when we're not in Boston. You know, we have to leave and go somewhere else in order for him to be relaxed. Alexa Karatenikov at Lilly um, has, um, you know, been very generous with the animals. We also get FGF21 from, from the Lilly group, um, and we periodically get together and do some data exchange, not, not so much in the last year or two. I think it's as, as I've gotten into brown fat, they've had less and less interest. But anyway... Um, um, Maria uh, Chantal, we collaborated with in Spain, and we got those uh, livers from humans. Detlef Chupan is a hepatologist. Uh, when we first realized we had 
liver issues, we talked to him and, one, and actually this is a junior guy in his group, Yuri Popov, Yuri Popov, they've been very interested and they were very helpful in telling us how to look at the liver in terms of fibrosis. Uh, this is a liver pathologist that read all of our slides. Nid Afdel and Michelle Lai are two clinical hepatologists who have been helping us with the, um, with the human studies. We now have a study looking at people with non-alcoholic fatty, confirmed non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which we're getting from uh, Nid and, and Michelle, so that we're, we're actually banking a collection of, uh, of human samples because they're having clinically indicated biopsies and we're getting a piece of their clinically indicated biopsies. The genomics core did the acne arrays, and these are some very nice and very dedicated research assistants that have helped out with the studies. Um, these are my two daughters. I, I like looking at them. Uh, uh, she's actually a gastroenterologist on staff at the BI, and uh, this one who said she would never, ever, ever, ever go to medical school is actually working at the Brigham and applying to medical school. So we'll see what happens um, after... 10 years of mom, that's the last thing I ever want to do. Okay, thank you. Uh, wonderful work, very interesting. Becky? Hi. Um, so I think you said that both the mice and the humans with fatty liver, like Neville, uh, had high FGF 21. So do you think that just fatty liver alone, because even in the lean mice, do you think that just fatty liver alone is FGF21 resistant? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a really interesting question. <clears throat> we wanted to do the, the, the FGF21 um, infusions in those methionine choline deficient mice. Unfortunately, um, the, the fellow who was doing it was the surgeon, and she went back to her surgery rotation. And that diet is really complicated. You know, yeah, it's, like a, it's a mess. You have to, like, you know... Uh, there, it's not an easy diet to give to mice, so I haven't been able to convince anyone in the lab to go back and do that exact experiment. Because I think it's an interesting question. Yeah, they've got high FGF21, they have fatty liver, you'd predict they'd be resistant without the obesity, but yeah, the experiment was not done. Yes? Um, I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but, um, did you try introducing FGF21 um, in mice and then placing them on a ketogenic diet and comparing it to normal mice who are on a ketogenic diet to see if they lose weight faster or more weight? Yeah, no, we've never gone back, like, actually use FGF21 and then give them a diet. That's actually something we haven't done. So, sort of like a boost or like, if there's a saturation point, and it, like, you, could, you know, there's not... You've added too much FGF, so it's not going to do anything more. Yeah, no, so that's an interesting question. My guess would be that we have such a huge induction on the ketogenic diet that it's you know, like a 50-fold induction that probably it wouldn't do any more, uh, but we haven't done that experiment. Tony? So have you looked at, or has anyone looked at exercise and the effect of exercise and whether, you know, FGF1 is, FGF1 is important in the partitioning of fatty acids, you know, to deliver from metabolism so you could... Yeah, no, that's a really good question. We have we have we have not done that. I mean, we we haven't like uh, run mice and taken their livers and seen whether or not um, you'd have to do it in wild type mice. I mean, it would be hard to interpret in obese mice because when you exercise obese mice, they actually do lose weight if you give them um, just a free running wheel. You don't even have you don't have to force exercise in them. So if they're losing weight and they're increasing fatty acid oxidation in the liver, it might be hard to fig to you know, to kind of figure out what's the weight loss effect versus the exercise effect. But in wild-type animals, yeah, I think you could definitely do that. Or even just acutely to see if exercising... Yeah, like on, like a, on a treadmill. ...the fatty acids yeah. the muscles or the heart. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, we haven't done that. And I don't know that anybody's done that. There, There's one or two papers suggesting it's, it's also expressed in muscle and may be involved in fatty acid oxidation in muscle, but that's something we haven't followed up. It's a good question. Yes? <coughs> How does a ketogenic diet look in humans and how would people voluntarily eat that? Oh, okay, so ketogenic diet in humans is not nearly as bad as the ketogenic diet in mice. So popularly, it's the Atkins diet. And um, I know a couple of people who, as colleagues, have been on the Atkins diet for like years. And actually, my gynecologist has been on the Atkins diet for years. He was telling me about it one day because he thought it was so fantastic. 
because he'd never been able to lose weight and he went on it and he, he thinks it's great. The other paradox is I occasionally talk to people who go on the Atkins diet and they tell me they've never eaten so many vegetables. I go, what were you eating beforehand? I mean, like they really, <laughs> you know, if you're eating more vegetables, because, you know, it's pretty free. I mean, like, you know, vegetables, like especially green vegetables like broccoli and, uh, you know, carnivorous vegetables like, you know, cauliflower and stuff like that. You can eat a lot of that in a ketogenic diet. You can't eat too many carrots, but you can eat a lot of green vegetables. So that, it's actually pretty well tolerated. Now, it also turns out there's almost a mouse version of the diet that's used clinically in kids with seizure disorders. And those, those diets have been around for like 30 years. And in fact, one of the reasons the diet we used was, was commercially available is that there, they, it was, it's used in rat models of seizure disorders. So it turns out that if you have, it, it, in, in intractable seizures that like don't respond to multiple pharmacologic agents, there are a couple of clinics. There's one in Boston, and there's actually one in um, in Baltimore. There's a big one in Baltimore. Kids go on ketogenic diets, and those ketogenic diets are more severe than Atkins. Although there's now some sense that probably the the the, the, the more, there are a couple of versions of Atkins, the more restricted version of Atkins may be just as good. So like, so like if you're on that diet, like, you know, you, blueberries and cream is 10 blueberries and a cup of cream, as opposed to a cup of blueberries with a tablespoon of cream. And the kids stay on these diets because their diet is controlled by their parents. Um, you know, and, and if they have like one or two cookies, they see. So there's a strong incentive to be on those diets. And they apparently, their linear growth is normal. It doesn't stunt their, because also in humans, there's a reasonable amount of protein in, in, in those diets. Their linear growth is normal, and they're lean, is, is what's reported in the literature. So I have a question. Uh, looks like that uh, the FGFTD1 also involved in regulating a glucose output by the liver. Looks like the glycogen accumulation <coughs> in the liver, the knockout mice. So I was wondering if you're looking any further into this. Yeah. Yeah, so we actually tried doing some clamps. And the, and the problem with doing clamps is if you fast the animals, right, their FGF21 goes up. So we, we have um, an aim in, 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 in my grant to look at that, <clears throat> but to look at it in the knockout animals. So we actually take knockout animals, do the clamps, and then back, add back FGF21 coincident with the clamps in the non bad animals. So so that's actually on the list, the, the to-do list, right? I mean, right now we're sort of, um, uh, we're sort of like totally enamored with uh, with brown adipose tissue. So, so we've got to move away from that a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, I guess the knockout animal also going to the hypoglycemia state, semic state, when it's fasting them because of their unable to... No, the knockout animals have, have a normal normal response to fasting. So whatever, whatever FG21 is doing in the liver, it's pretty much... Um, you know, it, it, insulin is more important. So you can fast a knockout pretty pretty much normally, and 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 uh, yeah, they don't have, they don't have problems with that. And and they're a little bit insulin insensitive when you do when you do a glucose tolerance test. So great. All right. Thank you Thank so you. much.